The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 59, Heian, Japan. In the previous episode, we told the story of Japan from the first human migrations to the islands up to the end of the 8th century and the beginning of the Heian period. We learned of how the first migrants developed their own unique culture somewhat isolated from the mainland, but not completely out of touch with it. An ancient belief system emerged which is regarded as the earliest form of Shinto, which is considered to be the indigenous religion of the Japanese islands. As China became a considerable empire around 2,000 years ago, their interest in the Japanese islands increased, with migrations of peoples from the mainland taking place throughout the first millennium. This brought with it many aspects of Chinese culture which would ultimately fuse together with the existing culture of the islands to create the medieval Japanese culture that we are more familiar with. The Japanese would bury their elite class in burial mounds called Kofun, which can be found in their tens of thousands throughout Japan. This elite class would have likely been clan rulers and their high-ranking associates and family members. Japan itself would have been the home of many clans, all protecting their lands and battle-ready as one clan battled another. Inevitably, some clans would grow more powerful than others and coalitions would start to emerge. One such coalition of tribes was called the Yamato Kingship and this kingship could be recognised as the most powerful polity in Japan at that time. With mainland emigration from China through Korea, many cultural aspects would migrate to Japan also. One of the most influential of these aspects was Buddhism, which was adopted by some of the highest ranking clans of Japan. One of those clans, or Uji as they are referred to in Japan, was the Sogachi. The Sogachi, a strong influence on the imperial court of Japan, worked hard to promote Buddhism. But there were opposing Uji, who feared that the Soga were becoming too powerful. One of the more notable clans was the Nakatomishi. The Nakatomishi neutralised the Sogashi, and in most cases during this period when Japan was trying to establish its true identity, the capital city was moved on multiple occasions to attempt to give the Japanese nation a clean break from powerful influences. Continuing influence from Chinese cultures led to reformation and modernisation, which made the central Japanese state more powerful over its subjects. Many clans were brought into the Japanese state, with their lands being consumed 
and becoming part of a province of the central state. During the 8th century, it would be the members of the Buddhist priesthood that would become dangerously powerful and influential, despite attempts to ensure that members of the Buddhist priesthood could not become the imperial ruler by putting that law into the Japanese constitution. So eventually it would be decided that the capital city needed to be moved again to a place without the magnitude of Buddhist influence within it. Ultimately, in the year 794, Heian-kyo was selected as the new capital city, which is the modern city of Kyoto. This marked the beginning of the Heian period of Japanese history. Heian-kyo Emperor Kanmu felt that by establishing this new capital city at Heian-kyo, that he would be able to take power back from the Buddhist priesthood and reaffirm it under the imperial crown, much like the manner in which China was ruled. For too many years, both the Buddhist priests and clan leaders had had too much influence over the direction of the nation. In establishing a new capital city, Emperor Kenmu was attempting to create some stability to Japan and indeed the capital city would last as the capital for many centuries. But there would always still be much in the way of instability in Japan as the different powers within the islands vied for control. Much as Japan resisted control by the Chinese, it was still incredibly important for there to be a healthy relationship between Japan and China. Having a powerful friend was always beneficial. Despite Emperor Kanmu's vision of seeing the Japanese imperial court become the supreme governing power in Japan, the political situation in Japan made this impossible, with there being too many highly influential individuals, especially within the aristocracy. The ideal scenario of the emperor was to make all of the lands of Japan public lands, meaning that they were owned by the state and controlled by an appointed governor who would manage the lands and their output. The reality was that many of the lands were privately owned, meaning that the financial power of the aristocracy could not be contained by the emperor, who might be equally interested in selling public lands in order to bolster the imperial economy. So the absolute imperial rule over Japan was more of a fantasy than a realistic prospect. Emishi. During the 8th century, the Japanese nation had recognised the problem of the people living in the north of the island of Honshu. These people had never truly been integrated into the Japanese nation and could be considered to be the barbarians of the islands. The true original ethnicity of these Emishi people has been a matter of debate among experts. It is strongly suggested that they have a mixture of ethnicities including the earliest settlers on the Japanese islands and a connection to the modern Ainu ethnicity which dominates land surrounding the Sea of Ohutsk which is surrounded by the Russian east coast and associated islands all found to the north of Japan. Texts suggest that during the 8th century there was a tense relationship between the Japanese and the Emishi, who controlled the north of the island of Honshu. 
the Japanese appeared to be keen to take advantage of the opportunity to acquire lands in the north of Honshu, while the Emishi would be happy to entice the Japanese into hostile territory in order to ambush them. This was classic barbarian warfare where the army in superior numbers and technology were disadvantaged by less advanced societies operating with strong local knowledge of the terrain using guerrilla style tactics. Also we have reason to believe that the Yemisi were conducting impromptu raids on Japanese borderlands and attacking Japanese fortresses. Hostilities increased over the course of the 8th century between the Japanese and the Emishi. The Emishi problem became a much bigger problem than it ever should have been considering the Japanese military superiority. Such was the impact on the Japanese army that the Emishi had with their successful attacks and raids that the Japanese would have to make a considerable effort to recruit more soldiers from their population, something that would always come at a price. One such disaster was the Battle of Koromo River in 789, when an inferior numbered Emishi army defeated the Japanese army, driving many individuals into the river where they met with their death. However, the Emishi themselves were ultimately tribal and some Emishi tribes would be happy to be allies of the Japanese for their own benefit and this could serve to undermine the Emishi in general. Emperor Kanmu opted to disband the National Army before commissioning local governors to raise forces for the National Army instead. This move would save money for the imperial court but the disadvantage was that the local governors would become more powerful as a consequence. It was during the conflicts with the Emishi that Japanese governors would appoint a chief military commander specifically for the purpose of dealing with barbarian tribes such as the Emishi. The official title of this individual would be Seitai Shogun, often referred to more colloquially as Shogun. This title would become an important title in the Japanese military and ultimately in Japanese politics. Emperor Kanmu appointed a man called Sakanoi no Tamaramaro as the shogun and the aim would be the complete conquest of the Emishi. Although tensions had existed between Japan and Emishi for a number of decades, the heightened tensions at the end of the 8th century has been retrospectively labelled as the 38 Years War. In 802, Tamaramaro led an army into Emishi territory and defeated and killed the leader of the Isawa tribe of the Emishi, a man called Aterui. This defeat was huge for the Emishi. Some Emishi would defect to the Japanese side. Others would flee northwards to the island of Hokkaido. The remainder would still be allowed to reside in northern Honshu and govern their territories, but the major threat to Japanese borderlands that they had posed would now be severely diminished. Fujiwara. With a new power base established at the capital city of Heian-kyo, Japan would now look to establish itself as a national power in its own right, free from the overbearing shadow that China had over the nations of the Far East. 
The new strong influence on the imperial court was the Fujiwara clan, a clan who had descended from the Nakatomi, who had been in opposition to the pro-Buddhist Soga clan back in the 7th century. The Fujiwara managed to muscle their way into the imperial court when Emperor Seiwa became the 56th traditional Japanese emperor in the year 858 at the age of 8. Ordinarily, a member of the imperial royal family would act as the regent whenever a child or a female acceded to the chrysanthemum throne, the imperial throne of Japan. When Emperor Seiwa came to the throne, it would be his grandfather, Fujiwara no Yoshifusa, who would become the regent, and this was unusual because Yoshifusa had no imperial rank. This meant that the Fujiwara clan had effective control over the imperial court and new emperors were now being born to Fujiwara daughters and consorts as they ensured that there was Fujiwara blood in the imperial line. Further to this, members of the Fujiwara clan were now behaving as regents to adult male emperors, something which was not previously the case. The Fujiwara had ensured that they were strongly linked to the imperial court for many years to come. The rise of the Fujiwara is linked to a chilling of relations between Japan and China. As we have learned, a unique relationship had existed between the two nations, with China showing an imperial interest in Japan and Japan attempting to take as much as it could from Chinese culture in order to strengthen itself. Now that Japan had opened up a new chapter in its history by clarifying its identity away from the overzealous Buddhists and allowing the Fujiwara clan to dominate its politics, it didn't need to invite any further interest from China in its national affairs, and so Japan sought to isolate itself and cancelled missions to China, which had been a regular occurrence during the 7th and 8th centuries. It's certainly not that Buddhism was suppressed during this period, but more that it was kept in its place. And there was a very definite desire by many to justify the existence of Buddhism and Shinto simultaneously by suggesting that the Shinto deities referred to as the Kami had been manifestations of the original Buddha. The Japanese family clans often cited their existence as being descended from one of the Shinto Kami, therefore legitimising their individual importance. From the royal family in Japan, there was a different problem. Some of the emperors were siring large amounts of children, and although this would secure the imperial succession, it would also bring about succession disputes, and it would also create a large amount of royal family members to be financially sustained, and this was not particularly practical going forwards. So a process called dynastic shedding was introduced, whereby expendable and expensive members of the royal family, which may have even included direct children of the current emperor, were moved out of the royal family and into a separate family clan. In this case, either the Minamoto clan or the Taira clan. The two clans would remain highly influential in Japanese politics, but essentially the members would have to earn their wealth in the same way that members of other clans, such as the Fujiwara, would. 
This could be by the governance of lands, which by this time had turned into a system that resembled European feudalism, where the local governors would be expected to submit taxes through yield and military manpower in return for imperial recognition and support. The Minamoto and Taira clans would come to play an important role in the outcome of the Heian period, as we will find out. Taira no Masakado one of the earliest members of the Taira clan was Taira no Yoshimasa, who himself was a direct descendant of Emperor Kanmu, the emperor who oversaw the establishment of the new capital city of Heian-kyo, and subsequently the beginning of the Heian period. Although it may sound honourable in retrospect for Yoshimasa to be among the founder members of the Taira clan, remember that this was a demotion from being a member of the royal family to the status of a common man, so it would have been a disastrous event for him as an individual. However, due to the denationalisation of land holdings in the most recent centuries, it was very possible for such common men to become wealthy landowners, and with wealth comes power and influence. A son of Yoshimasa called Taira no Masakado, was hoping to inherit the fortunes of his father on his death, but the succession rules in regards to inheritance were sketchy, and other family members claimed the lands of Yasimasa, denying his son Masakado. Masakado had become a legendary figure due to the subsequent events, so differing versions of the events of his lifetime have surfaced throughout history. Essentially, it seems that Masakado fought back against his relatives and was summoned to the imperial courts to justify his aggressions, and it appeared that Masakado made a great job of justifying his actions, highlighting his position as a victim. When Masakado returned back to the east, he would start a campaign of expansion by conquest, taking control of significant amounts of territory. It is even suggested that due to his success that he would attempt to proclaim himself as an emperor of his lands, justifying this by citing that he was a direct descendant of Emperor Kanmu. The imperial court now had enough of Masakado and put a bounty on his head. And sure enough, he was beheaded, with his head being sent to the imperial court. Masakado's revolt against the Japanese Empire was the first major revolt against them and it was dealt with successfully. The head of Masakado is said to have gone back to the east where a shrine was built in his honour by those who celebrated his brave stand against the imperial machine. How the head travelled from Heian-kyo to the east is a mystery with legends of it failing to decompose and flying away from the city. When the head was captured and buried, the shrine was created, and Masakado was effectively deified. No great settlement existed at the location of the shrine, but over the centuries, the area became urbanised, and now the shrine exists at the centre of the modern capital city of Tokyo. Fujiwara Zenith. As we already know, members of the Fujiwara clan had taken control of the imperial throne 
and they were effectively ruling the Japanese Empire while emperors were on the throne ruling in name only. Power-hungry members of the Fujiwara clan could often be at odds with each other over who would control the throne. In one instance, a man called Fujiwara no Machinaga entered into a battle of intrigues with his nephew, Fujiwara no Gorechika, over who would become the new imperial regent. Michinaga would emerge with the upper hand and effectively became the regent. With Machinaga as regent, we can see a real power shift away from the emperor, who was not particularly powerful in any case. The power shifted into the hands of Michinaga, who created an aura of magnificence around himself and his regency. He was an advocate of the literary arts and religion, and he not only supported and invested in such things, but he would also invest in his own grandeur, creating great ceremonies with a view to impress or create awe among the challengers to the Fujiwara. His daughters would be married to Japanese emperors, meaning that future emperors could be descended from him, and Fujiwara blood was still in the imperial bloodline. During Michinaga's lifetime, two significant works of literature emerged. The first one was likely never intended for the public. We know this work as The Pillow Book, written by a court lady to the empress called Seishonagon. And this work is a very personal work which includes poetry and Shonagon's personal thoughts. Shonagon makes several references to Michinaga in her work. The second work was by another court lady called Burasaki Shukibu, and unlike the disjointed works of Sei Shonagon, this work called The Tale of Genji was written as a story, and is regarded as one of the earliest novels to be written, perhaps even the earliest. While it seems that the protagonist of the story, Hikaru Genji, may have been entirely fictitious, the character may well have been based on one or more real people and it was certainly set within the Japanese royal court. Hikaru Genji is the son of a Japanese emperor and he is removed from the royal family by the dynastic shedding that we described earlier in the episode. Interestingly, the word Genji is thought to be derived from the Onyomi pronunciation of the character that represents the clan name Minamoto. So this would suggest that the Genji is actually the Minamoto clan. Onyomi is the Japanese method of pronouncing the Chinese versions of the written characters. A little bit complicated, but essentially many Chinese glyphs exist in Japanese writing, but they have an entirely different vocalised version. You can think of Onyomi as the Japanese version of the Chinese vocalisation, so similarly to how English people say the word orange when it was originally the French word orange. Such is the significance of this piece of work that there is now even a The Tale of Genji Museum in southern Kyoto, which is the modern name of the former capital Heian-kyo. The regency of Fujiwara no Michinaga 
is considered to be the apogee of the Fujiwara dominance in Japan. Cloistered Emperors It was somewhat traditional now for the reigning emperor to have a member of the Fujiwara aristocracy as their maternal grandfather. Emperor Gosazaku's maternal grandfather was Fujiwara no Michinaga, and Gosazaku would sire sons by Fujiwara women, but he also married his cousin, Princess Teishi, whose father was not a Fujiwara noble, but an emperor. The fact that she was not a Fujiwara daughter would create tension at the imperial court with Michinaga's son, Fujiwara no Yorimichi. Yorimichi would promote his own daughter to also become the wife to Emperor Gosuzaku and actively look to undermine Princess Teishi by excluding her from the imperial court and having her regarded as a secondary empress. This would create ill feeling between Teishi and the Fujiwara clan that would go on to have long-term effects and repercussions. Emperor Gosuzaku would be succeeded by his son Goreze as the emperor. Goreze's mother was a Fujiwara woman called Kishi, so as far as the Fujiwara clan was concerned, Goreze was a legitimate emperor in respect of the Fujiwara cause. This would be unlike Goreze's younger half-brother Gosanjo, who, although was the son of the late Emperor Gosuzaku, was also the son of Princess Teishi, who was not regarded as being of Fujiwara descent. There is likely to be little doubt that Gosanjo was brought up by his mother, Princess Teishi, to have a very cynical view of the Fujiwara, especially one Fujiwara no Yorimichi, who, as we know, actively pushed Princess Teishi out of the closest quarters of the imperial court. Yorimichi was actively looking to exclude Gosanjo from imperial ceremony, which would be the norm for a crown prince such as Gosanjo. Yorimichi would cite the fact that Gosanjo was not born by a Fujiwara mother to deny his legitimacy to become the emperor, and he would prevent his older half-brother Goreze from abdicating in order to prevent Gosanjo from occupying the chrysanthemum throne. Goreze died in the year 1068, and so Gosanjo finally got his opportunity to become the emperor. Yorimichi left his position as chief advisor, and this would enable Gosanjo to be able to start turning the imperial court away from Fujiwara dominance. Members of the rival Minamoto clan were invited to take important political positions and they would actively look to declare some of the Fujiwara landholdings as not legally obtained. In order to prevent Fujiwara landlords from becoming powerful influencers operating outside of the boundaries of the law. Gosanjo would then allow his son to become the new emperor Shirakawa, while Gosanjo would oversee his rule from the background, and this would be to prevent a Fujiwara regent from dominating his son. 
Gosanjo officially abdicated in order to join a monastery, but in actuality would still maintain an element of control over the imperial court. This was the beginning of a period of cloistered emperors, which are referred to in Japanese as Insei, and it was a counterbalance to the dominance of the Fujiwara clan over national affairs. Emperor Shirakawa would himself abdicate in favour of his own son, Emperor Horikawa, who died young, and was succeeded by his own son, Emperor Toba, who was only four years of age. More emperors would abdicate in order to rule from the background while fresh young faces carried out the formal and ceremonial duties of the emperor. Although this may have been initially harmonious, a situation evolved where too many influential individuals were attempting to manipulate the imperial court, and this created tension among the rival Insei and the individual clans who were ready to exploit the chaos. The Genpei War Emperor Toba was only 20 years of age when he abdicated in favour of his three-year-old son who became Emperor Sotoku. It would actually be Emperor Sotoku's great-grandfather, the former Emperor Shirakawa, who would be pulling the strings as a cloistered emperor or an insei. After the elderly Shirakawa's passing, Toba would become the most highly influential insei. Sutoku would come of age and then abdicate himself at the age of 22. His successor would be his younger half-brother, Emperor Konoi, who would become the 76th traditional emperor of Japan. Konoi died at a young age, so the new emperor would be Sutoku's younger full-brother, Go Shirakawa. The Japanese word go here means later, so in this case, Go Shirakawa can be distinguished from the previous emperor called Shirakawa. The retired emperor Sutoku and his younger brother, the reigning emperor Go Shirakawa, did not see eye to eye and could not agree on the imperial succession. Sutoku felt that Go Shirakawa should not have become the emperor and that Sotoku's own son should have become the emperor. Tensions increased so much that it would become a case of power against power and nobles rallied to the cause of both sides. This would include clan members from the Minamoto and the Naira clans as well as members of the Fujiwara clan who had still had a strong involvement in the imperial bloodlines. This event is called the Hogen Rebellion of 1156 and culminated in a battle where the forces of the reigning Emperor Goshirakawa were victorious. Emperor Goshirakawa abdicated in favour of his own son, Emperor Nijo, leaving Goshirakawa to become an insei. The defeated older brother, Sutoko, was banished. With Toko out of the picture, those clan members involved would now prioritise the position of their respective tribes, and so there would be tensions actually between the Minamoto and the Taira. The Minamoto may have felt that members of the Taira were benefiting too well in the aftermath of the Hogan Rebellion, and so the Minamoto would take the opportunity 
to instigate an uprising, which we call the Heiji Rebellion. The Minamoto would place both the Insei Gosharakura and his son Emperor Nijo under house arrest, attempting to take central control. Members of the Taira clan would soon catch up with the Minamoto and run them out of the capital city of Kyoto, which we have also referred to as Heian-kyo during this episode. This would only serve to heighten tensions between the Minamoto and the Taira clans, which would have long-lasting consequences for the whole of Japan. In the next episode, we will be looking at the Battle of Dannoura, the concluding battle of a wider conflict which is called the Genpei War, when tensions between the Minamoto and the Taira reached breaking point and the political direction of Japan would change forever. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on Heian, Japan. And uh, we'll be staying in Japan for a little while longer for another two or three episodes. So we're going to continue this story. Now, if you, uh, if you enjoy the History of the World podcast and you would like to support the History of the World podcast, then please visit the History of the World podcast.com website. Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you will qualify for gifts and rewards. Just go to the Patreon site and you'll be able to see uh, what you can qualify for there. Now this week we've got a new member to uh, to introduce to you and to welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati and that is Luciano. So welcome in Luciano and thank you for supporting the podcast. Now if you want to access bonus material and you want to listen to the podcast ad free then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify just click the link in the description for the podcast and if you would like to get in touch with the podcast then please drop me a line at history of the world podcast at mail.com I will of course read the best ones out Listener messages and reviews. Now, just before I go any further, I was just about to read out the emails and I noticed that I got an email from the website called Forvo, who, um, well, basically you can listen to pronunciations of words by native speakers. So it's an incredible resource and one that I, you know, I attempt to use uh, for pronouncing uh, foreign words especially Japanese words and, uh, and I must apologize to any native Japanese speakers um, who uh, you know probably wonder what on earth I'm doing trying to pronounce these Japanese words and and getting them hideously wrong of course it's not just about the pronunciation of the word it's the it's the intonations uh, that, are, that are difficult in Japanese, but I noticed that um, you know somebody has attempted to um, to to recreate the the words in their native tongue 
for me on Forvo. So that's a good tool to use if ever you want to understand how to pronounce something in a different language. Have a little look on that website, Forvo. Uh, F-O-R-V-O, Forvo. We did receive uh, some messages this week. Um, we did receive one from uh, Luciano Trevino, who I believe is our new patron. And he's put, hey, yo, my name is Luciano from Racine, Wisconsin, USA. I hit you back a while ago on Tumblr, Fat Likes Galaxy. Started around when you posted the Magna Carta episode and have been grinding through the podcast while I work. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your dedication and passion. Cataloguing history and everything in it is a huge task and you are doing amazing. Only critique is that, although a lot of history has been destroyed by colonialism, oral history is still a valid form of history. You can edit books as much as you can edit a story. I'm a Mexican-American and I would love it if you could invest more time and effort into finding better resources for these civilizations. I know that will be hard, but the story of the Americas deserves to be told in as much detail. Thank you again for this wonderful podcast and I will be joining the Illuminati soon. Well, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Luciano, when you've sort of gone into the fact that Oral history is, is pretty much all we have to go on in terms of uh, pre-Columbian American stories because we just don't have any writing. And um, even the fact that we've only just introduced the Japanese story is an indication that we were relying much more on Chinese writings to know what was going on in the Far East. And a lot of what we know um, about uh, Southeast Asia is written by the Chinese and the Indian cultures that came in close contact with them. And, of course, we we can understand and um, we can translate old Sanskrit and old Chinese texts. Uh, but with the Americas, we, we don't really have any contact with any written or writing society. Um, so, therefore, what we do know is scant and it's mainly based on uh, archaeology. So I, I don't know, maybe there are better resources out there for the episodes that I'm making on pre-Columbian mound builders and and uh, the um, Mississippian culture is the other one. So maybe there are better resources that I could be exploring there, but uh, maybe you guys can help me with that. But a very helpful email, that, uh, Luciano, and uh, maybe um, I should be thanking you for uh, becoming a member of the Illuminati. Um, Lizeth GOS has written in and put, um, I accidentally found your podcast. Even if I want, I couldn't leave it. I think it's, uh, I think I started listening to it in 2018. Here I am in 2023, listening every time I can. It's incredible how you make everything interesting. I love your accent. It's easy for me to understand. I'm Mexican. There we go. Another uh, link to Mexi Mexican culture isn't there throughout this section of the podcast. Please never leave this work. We never know. Um, well, thank you very much, uh, Lizeth G.O.S. Well, that's it 
for another week, History of the World podcast, and uh, apologies for um, there being a gap between the last episode. I think I've made a number of explanations about how uh, a few lifestyle changes have uh, sort of disrupted the, the happy equilibrium of the podcast that we're used to, but never fear, I, I, there's no way that I'm giving up on this project. Um, it's just taking me a little bit more time to produce than normal, but maybe if I can make some changes down the line, I can maybe buy back some more time for myself to invest back into the, the podcast. But thank you all so much for all of your support. You, it really does help more than you realise. So thank you so much. Anyway, next week, um, we've got the Battle of Dano Ura, and um, there, I think I might just give you a magazine episode um, as a bit of a bonus this week because we didn't publish anything last weekend. So I'd like to at least give you a little bit, um, you know, to ensure that you get an episode a week. So we'll continue that tradition. Anyway, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And as ever, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.